My name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here, and I've uh, been gone for the, the last month or so, and uh, so good to be back. And so many people have been asking, how was your time away? Was it so amazing? And I say, well, it was okay. It wasn't exactly what we anticipated in our 30 or 40-day get little getaway during the uh, time that we were off, my wife and I. Uh, we lost Jolene's mom, so she passed away, and uh, she passed away, it'll be about two weeks ago tomorrow, and uh, and then I lost my aunt, she was um, suffering for the last year or so, and so she passed away about a week later, and uh, so it's been an interesting time off. I was talking to Jolene this morning, and uh, she said, you know what, it would have been really difficult to navigate this last 30 days if we were trying to work. And so God knew and gave us some time off just to focus on family. Jolene's still home today. Um, the last bit of our clan is uh, flying out today, and so she wanted to be home to send them off. And so she loves you. She misses you. She'll be back next week, and uh, we love you. And it's been so good to be back this morning, and uh, we've got an amazing guest speaker, Seth Gruber's here today. And Seth, come on up here. I'll kind of explain who Seth is. If you don't know... Um, so a number of weeks ago, maybe, I don't know, a month or two ago, uh, our staff watched Seth while he was teaching and preaching and uh, leading down in, in uh, Chino Hills and uh, with Jack, and, uh, and we thought, what, how cool would it be to get Seth here? I wonder if Seth would come here, you know? So I put Jeremy on it, and uh, Jeremy's pretty, you know, pretty effective, and so um, <laughs> typically... You know, Seth preaches at larger churches, and so we wondered, <laughs> we wondered, would he come to our little humble place here? And uh, and being a California guy that he is, born and raised in California, he agreed to be here. And so, Seth, we're so happy that you're here. We bless you. We bless your message. Now, listen, if you came today, um, you, you need to, you're going to walk away today feeling like you've been punched in the gut maybe kicked in the gut, in the best possible way. This is going to be a wake-up call, and so I love you, appreciate you. It's all Thanks, you, buddy. Bro. Thanks, Pastor Steve. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, I call Pastor Jack Hibbs the pastor that America needs but doesn't deserve, kind of like Batman. Um, and I spent most of my uh, career calling ministry trying to plead on my knees with churches to do something. Um, and they're like, oh, we're not really political, and you're a little intense. And um, what they really meant was, I don't want to offend the registered Democrats who attend my church and tithe here, because then I might compromise my 501c3 status by preaching the full counsel of God. Um, that's what they meant, but they wouldn't say that. And so, and then uh, the shutdowns happened and the scamdemic and all the craziness. And then uh, Jack Hibbs, my earthly hero, puts out this national call uh, to open up the Bride of Christ and the doors of the church in California on May 31st, Pentecost Sunday of 2020. Uh, and my pastor, Rob McCoy, who had actually been, already been meeting before that, but then he packed his church out that Sunday and all these churches responded in kind. And I started realizing a ancient truth. When the enemy overplays his hand the good people start to wake up. Ronald Reagan once said that evil is powerless if the good are unafraid. And we have been afraid 
Um, for many, many years in the American culture war, we've been running around with our tail behind between our legs, screaming and whining about the Johnson Amendment and separation of church and state. Blah, 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 blah. We don't want to lose our 501c3 status and people won't tithe as much. And we're starting to recognize, oh, wow. What hath we wrought? My pastor, Rob McCoy, explains it like this. We've been waiting downstream to pick up human heartache that we helped create by not contending for righteousness upstream. That stream is the culture. That stream, it's the polity. It's the politics. And we were so afraid to run upstream to contend for godly ideas, to contend for the things that were the closest to the Father's heart, and to steward this crazy thing called America that we've been given. You, what's the left been talking about recently? Have you noticed it's a Christian nationalism? Have you seen this? Like all the mainstream media activists, news sources, I call them journalistic prostitutes for the culture of death. Um, they were all parroting this line on their chirons and headlines of like, the Christian nationalism. The Christians are trying to create a theocracy, right? It's like, we're already living under a theocracy, the theocracy of the religion of secular humanism. You see, the question is not, will there be like a dominant religion or a dominant morality that reigns in the public square? The question is, whose? That is the lesson of human history, if there is any. Uh, the other one being that God intervenes in the affairs of men. Uh, but, but it's that there will be a dominant morality, a system of thought, and dare I say, a religion. And if you dare run afoul of the theocracy of the religion of secular humanism, you will also be thrown into, out into utter darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. H have you noticed how religious the left tends to function while they scream and whine and cry about how they're not religious? It's like, man, you really hate a God you don't believe exists. It's very interesting. They, they function far more liturgically and religiously than most Christians. Uh, what are some examples of this? Um, I don't know, transgenderism? What's the underlying belief behind transgenderism? It's based off of an old uh, Christian heresy called Gnostic dualism or body self-dualism. Um, it's this belief that the body uh, means nothing. Uh, and there were old Christian Gnostics um, who, who said, well, the body is prone to sin, all these carnal fleshly desires. So the conclusion they came to, and Pastor Steve can correct me if I'm getting my Christian history wrong, is that the, the body is it's evil. It's, it's, because it's fallen, it's actually so flawed um, that the Christians ended up denigrating the body and focusing just on the intangible. So your thoughts, your aims, your consciousness, and your desires. This is also known as body self-dualism or Gnostic dualism. And so the belief was that the real person was your thoughts, aims, consciousness, and desires. So the body is actually not the person. It's a shell that houses the real you. Now, Christ declares this a heresy, why? Because he comes with a body, by the way, a, a fetal flesh. Jesus chooses to identify with you from your most vulnerable stage, the prenatal stage, and takes on fetal flesh as the prenatal deity fetus God man. So there's Christianity for you. And then he's killed, and when he rises, he doesn't rise as some spirit, he rises with a body. And it still has the holes in his hands. 
So Christ declares Gnostic dualism a heresy just by his life, death, and resurrection. But what I'm trying to teach you guys right now, what I'm trying to give you a primer for, for the next uh, 50 minutes, which will really be 80 minutes, but I shouldn't tell you that, um, <laughs> is that um, all human conflict is ultimately theological to quote Cardinal Manning, actually. You'll hear me quote some Catholics today. I'm a Protestant, but listen, uh, there's some Protestants that need to read some more Catholic writers, and there's some Catholics who need to read some more Protestant writers. I'm, I'm, I'm not getting into that theological debate. I'm just saying there, there are many Catholics who have been more faithful to protect the lives of the preborn than the blood-bought bride of Christ in the Protestant movement since Martin Luther. Anyways, I'm digressing here. So um, Cardinal Manning said, all human conflict is ultimately theological. What's he mean? He's saying, hey, the, these culture wars, all these political debates, all these disagreements that we're always screaming at each other across the aisle in America, it's not purely political. It's not purely cultural. It's spiritual. When we have these political disagreements, we're really talking about applied morality. Right? Isn't that what politics is? You're trying to apply moral principles to determine how we're going to govern one another and how we're going to live together. But when you're talking about applied morality, you're really talking about morality in general, moral principles. And then when you zoom out from morality writ large in moral concepts, you're really talking about um, how we know things, right? The study of epistemology. Can we even know anything? <laughs> right? some, of the, some of the old Gnostics used to say, there is objective truth, but we can't know it because we're, it, we're, we're blinded by our sense perceptions. So that's the study of epistemology, the, the study of knowledge. H how can we know things? Can we know things? So when you zoom out from morality, you're talking about, can we even know anything about morality? That's epistemology. Then you zoom out from there, you're talking about anthropology, right? the study of human nature. What does it mean to be a human, right? <laughs> and then when you zoom out from there, ultimately, you're getting to theology. All of these disagreements and debates about morality, political policies, cultural issues, cultural fads, when you really zoom out all the way, all human conflict is ultimately theological. And the abortion debate, the transgenderism debate, the kooky weird sex ed in the public schools that Planned Parenthood is so obsessed on pushing under your young children in elementary schools and junior highs and high schoolers, all of this stuff coalesces. All of these people are ultimately on the same team and they all have undergirding um, presuppositional religious tenets that drive their political action. They're just more dogmatic about their public religion in the public square than most of the Christians are for theirs. So, this, the, the whole, you know, alphabet mafia, uh, LGBTQ, LMNOP, um, it's functioning off of, when you zoom out, an old heresy called body self-dualism. So, I publicly announced uh, last year, two years ago, that um, I'm actually Sally. <laughs> and and I, I learned how to liberate Sally from the physical prison of the biological Seth. Because biology provides no rational basis for who the real person is in the real world. The Imago Dei is a joke. The incarnation is the butt end of a joke. It's not true, there's no God. And so I can remake myself in my own image. And because of body self and Gnostic dualism, because the body's a shell for the real person and the real person is thoughts, aims, consciousness, and desires, my consciousness and self-identity is a female. And so as a uterus holder, I was so excited for my liberal friends in the culture of death to welcome my opinion 
on the issue of abortion as a woman who can speak to that issue with the same biological authority as Sally, hear me roar. (laughs) And then last year, I summoned up the courage of my conviction to publicly announce for the first time that I was trans-vaccinated. <laughs> and because the body and physical realities provide no rational basis for who the real person is in the real world, and the real person is thoughts, aims, consciousness, and desires, while I never have received the Fauci ouchie, I was able to imprint my vaccination self-perception and identity onto the moral fabric of my spiritual self. And so because I don't have the spike protein is irrelevant to the conversation because the real person is thoughts, aims, consciousness, and desires. So if a woman can reside in the male prison body of Seth, then a vaccinated person can reside in the physical prison of the unjabbed Seth. And so I would like you to refer to me by my vaccination pronouns, Vaxed V. And just as I changed my gender on my driver's license, I've now changed my vaccination status on my vaccine passport. Now, this is all funny and we're all laughing about this, but have you noticed the similar undergirding theological principles that undergird the culture wars? Most of the culture war today is actually based on this old ancient heresy called Gnostic dualism. Because if the body means nothing and real persons are not their bodies, then why can a man be a woman? If the real person is your self-identity, your consciousness, and your desires. If the body means nothing and biological realities provide no rational basis for understanding who real persons are in the real world, then why can't I identify as trans-vaccinated? Because I'm imprinting my self-identity onto the body of my intangible self. And it's the same ideology that undergirds abortion today. The pro-abortion lobby in the culture of death says that the baby may be a human, but they're not a person. Because real persons are not bodies. They're thoughts, aims, consciousness, and desires. And because the baby in the womb has not realized certain developmental markers where they can, phys- where they can manifest self-identity, self-awareness, consciousness. and It's true, the baby in the womb does not have desires. They're not self-aware. The same is true after birth, by the way. My, when my wife dresses my cute little do- newborn, two-month-old baby Sophie and holds her up in the mirror, Sophie's not going, ah, I look adorable. <laughs> Thank you, mom, for this cute outfit. I'm aware of myself as an autonomous individual who's never existed before and will never exist again. Right? My daughter Sophie's not self-aware. In fact, it's, it actually, studies have shown that babies are not self-aware until months after birth. So by the way, that's just a little vignette to teach you that the same arguments that can be used to dehumanize and murder the preborn can also be used this side of the womb as well. Anyways, it's the same old ancient heresy. Because if the baby hasn't realize these cognitive abilities and desires that the left says grounds real persons, then why not abort them? Because they may be human with a human body, but real persons are not bodies, which is why I'm Sally, the trans-vaccinated 
Uh, I was trying to think of other intersectionality, intersectionality checkboxes. I got ahead of myself. We, sh we should laugh and mock at all of these things, but what I'm trying to get you to realize is that all of these people are on the same team. It was an alternative religion. So when pastors refuse to preach against issues that are defined as political, they're not being not political. They're refusing to preach against false religion that masquerades as the politics to keep the politically impotent pastors silent. Church, don't you know how much most pastors fear the label political? Pastors are so afraid of that phrase. So they won't preach on things that are biblical, that are religious, that are spiritual because of the fear of having the label of politics associated to their pulpit and platform, which is really just an admission that they don't want to lose their 501c3 statuses. The Johnson Amendment, the separation of church and state. So let's keep the state out of the church. Oh, they only mean that as a one-way road. That's why you're all super spreader, granny killers, non-essential, no singing in church Christians. Remember Gavin Newsom Leaney's executive order? Don't sing in churches. Who remembers this? Oh my gosh. But if you were a pontiff or a high priest in the religion of humanism and you walked through the streets of San Luis Obispo, I probably said that wrong, Berkeley, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, Minneapolis, St. Paul, DC, Philadelphia, Chicago, and you opened up the hymnal book of the religion of secular humanism, because they have their hymns and they have they, their liturgies, and you marched in the thousands in the streets with no face diapers, and you sang, Systemic racism, Black Lives Matter, blah, 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 blah. And the spit flew off their lips. Fauci came out and said, thank you for bringing an awareness to the, he said, the public health crisis of systemic racism. So what we learned, guys, as a lesson that this was always a spiritual war, what we learned is that COVID got woke. It was the political mutation of a virus. Don't you know, you stupid science-denying rubes? it learned to differentiate between secular liberals and religious conservatives. So when you gathered, you were granny killers and super spreaders. But when the high pontiffs of the religion of humanism gathered in larger numbers than you were gathering in this church, it wasn't a super spreader. It was fascinating. There was, I guess, I guess COVID's only dangerous when religious conservatives gather. I'm so excited for Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins to launch scientific research into how a virus learned to differentiate between people's political ideologies. What's my point? They just didn't want the blood-bought bride of Christ gathering to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who entered human history in a uterus to redeem mankind from their sins. Because if you're faithful to Hebrews 12, no, don't forsake meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. I probably got it wrong. And, and you, you understood that Romans 13, which says be obedient to the governing authorities for they're instituted by your good, also means that when they cease to do good, they cease to be the authority. And we're accountable to a higher power when we stand before him on the day of judgment. Because Gavin Newsom knew that if you did that, maybe you would start living as if there is a God and Newsom is not him. And you will sit down and remember your place in this republic. Hmm. So the, the hymns of the secular humanists were acceptable, but the hymns of the bride of Christ were dangerous. 
I've been a pro-life activist since I was a fetus. Um, my mother was a director of a pregnancy resource center in Los Angeles County in Azusa, California, near APU. She directed that center through the late 1980s and early 1990s. I was born in 1991. She stepped down when she gave birth to me. My mother went to be with the Lord in 2015 after cancer destroyed her body. And we found an old uh, pamphlet from that pregnancy center in, the, in our house that announced that my mother would be stepping down as the director of the Pregnancy Resource Center, Living Alternatives, to welcome her firstborn son, Seth. So listen, I've been a pro-life activist since I was a fetus because I've learned from the culture of death that follow the science means her body, her choice. What's the rallying cry of the pro-abortion movement? What is it? My body, my choice. That's been the rallying cry for decades. So if that's true, that means there's only one body. This is why they don't say, our body's my choice. You have to filter out of sight any recognition of a separate human being bearing injuries that are lethal. So they have to argue that there's just one body. So according to the law of transitive properties, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. So if the body in her body is her body and there's only one body, then every part of my body was part of my mother's body, which means that quite literally every baby my mother saved as the director of a pregnancy resource center, I saved. <laughs> Follow the science. I'm starting to think that that's just a phrase you use to disguise and masquerade your very kooky, humanistic heresy beliefs so that you can label the entire population as science deniers who understand that all human conflict is ultimately theological. I was homeschooled through eighth grade. I went to Whittier High School, Nixon's alma mater, and I did my senior project on the issue of abortion. Whittier High School told me, you can't pick that topic. We have it here in our senior project guidelines. There's some topics you can't pick. Oh, there it is, abortion, sorry. And I'm only embellishing slightly. At 18 years old, I said, here's a copy of the Constitution you're making me read in government class right now. I recommend you read it or you're going to have a lawsuit on your hands. I threatened a lawsuit to Whittier High School in Los Angeles County at 18 years old. They backed up real quick. And I did my senior project on the issue of abortion. It's a small lesson and vignette to remind you that some of these Fauci and dwarf-like would-be tyrants are just masquerading strength to cover up inner weaknesses. And when you stand in the middle of the road of the culture of death and you say, sit down, tyrant, they sit down because they're just puny little tyrants who want to rule over you. And so I learned that at 18 years old. And then I did my senior project on the issue of abortion. I looked at abortion imagery for the first time, the mutilated bodies of children arranged on tables at six, seven, eight, and nine weeks old in the first trimester when 90% of abortions are performed. It's one of the turning points in my life. I went to Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California, somewhere I do not recommend you send your children. You're playing Russian roulette with their values. And Westmont College is who Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to when he called cheap grace Christians. Westmont College creates advocates for the enemy under the veneer of Orthodox Christianity. Gail Beebe, the current sitting president of Westmont College, hires pro-abortion professors. And I could tell you their names because they're still teaching there. I started the first pro-life club that had ever existed there. In my junior year, I held dead baby photo signs outside of the dining commons on campus to expose my alma mater's refusal to take a pro-life position and their hiring of pro-abortion professors. Westmont College's motto is Christus Prumatum Tenens. It means Christ preeminent in all things. So I would sort of uh, facetiously joke around and ask, was Christ preeminent from the moment he was human? The moment of conception? Because if so, then you're hiring professors who are committing a Christological heresy by being pro-choice. Because that would maintain that Christ was at some point fully God, but not fully human. So that's my background. 
Then I graduated, I started doing pro-life speaking at 23 years old, I'm 31 now, and I launched my own organization last spring, and my good friend Charlie Kirk helped sponsor the White Rose Resistance National Live Tour of the fall, and my pastor, Rob McCoy, is the co-founder of Turning Point USA, faith to mobilize and awaken the church to contend for righteousness and demand the welfare of the city where we are in exile, for in her welfare you will find your welfare. The hour could not be later, friends. The FBI arrested 11 pro-life sidewalk counselors last fall, showed up outside of their homes unannounced, handcuffed them and dragged them away from their screaming family members. Not for blocking the access to abortion centers, not for trespassing inside abortion centers, just for sidewalk counseling outside of abortion centers. Pro-life OBGYNs last year are being targeted for pregnancy discrimination if they refuse to perform an abortion. It's actually fascinating. I covered this in my podcast. It's called Unaborted with Seth Gruber because we're all unaborted. Or to quote Reagan, I've noticed everyone who's for abortion has already been born. <laughs> if you go subscribe to Unaborted with Seth Gruber, YouTube, or any audio podcast app, in a few months you'll be a pro-life ninja flipping around, demolishing abortion bigotry wherever you find it. And I just had my friend uh, Mark Houck on the podcast, and Mark Houck was arrested by 30 armed FBI agents with rifles drawn pointed at his family on September 23rd, 2022, several months ago. Um, for protecting his 12-year-old son from a Planned Parenthood death escort, escort screaming obscenities into his 12-year-old son's face and, and, and saying the most vile things. The Biden administration last year is trying to amend the Civil Rights Act to make pregnancy a condition of sex, which is hilarious because now we all know what women are. Some, some people had lattes before they came in. Let me break that down for you. <laughs> They're trying to make pregnancy a condition of sex, which of course assumes that you know what women are. Only women can have babies. Uh, so that they can go after pro-life OBGYNs who don't want to perform abortions. So that they can say that that's an example of sex discrimination, which is pregnancy discrimination. The Biden administration was doing this last year. They're, they're trying to amend this federal code so that they can have the legal ex excuse to say, oh, you don't want to perform abortions, OBGYN? Pregnancy discrimination. <laughs> Now, we would say, wait, 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 I thought pregnancy discrimination was if you were fired for being pregnant. Right? Isn't that what made, caused Betty Friedan to launch the National Organization for Women before she was brutally assaulted by the pro-abortion lobby to add abortion into the, into the political platform of the National Organization for Women? Lecture for another time. Betty Friedan, a, a first-wave feminist early on, was radicalized not because she wanted abortion, but because she was fired for being pregnant. And we would say, yeah, that's wrong. That's pregnancy discrimination. Now they're trying to redefine it to say, if you don't want to kill a baby. It's like, I don't think that word means what you think it means. I feel like the princess bride. Like, what in the world? But this has been the longtime political project of the secular humanists and the secular moral revolutionaries. It's to redefine every concept, redefine every word to cause chaos. Because when we use words, we actually are pointing to something that exists in the real world, aren't we? So when we say, man, I know this is crazy, but like, I actually don't mean woman. So, so that, that word man, it's a pointer that refers to men with male genitalia and male DNA. I mean, that's, that's a man, I don't mean a woman, right? We, we use language with the recognition that it's objective, that, that there is an objective reality, and we should align our lives with that reality. And there's a divine logos of the universe, John 1, the word became flesh, the logos became flesh. There is a divine logic of the universe that makes sense of the objective reality that we all sense internally. Eternity is written on the heart of man. Yeah. 
says the scriptures. But if you can redefine everything, and if you believe that you can imprint your preferences and definitions and self-understanding of the world onto the physical fabric or moral fabric of the universe, then you can redefine everything. It reminds me of Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> Chit-chatting with Humpty Dumpty. Anyone read the book in here? Yeah? And Humpty Dumpty's just sitting there going, just like Bernie Sanders high on pot or something, hanging out in Slow or Berkeley. You can just imagine like Kamala Harris just smoking it up, being like, when I use a word, it means precisely what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. And Alice, who's like getting red pills, she's like, can you really mean, make words mean so many different things? That's all. And Humpty Dumpty goes, the question is which is to be master? That's all. Presumably, Humpty Dumpty means, are we to master language or is language to master us? Because if language is to master us, then there is an objective reality to the universe. And language should align with objective realities. But if, if we're to master language, then there's no end to that political project. We can redefine everything to fit our preferences. This is why they've been redefining abortion as reproductive health care. This is why they redefine gender genital mutilations as, quote, gender-affirming health care. This is why they describe mama bears and papa bears who speak at school board meetings because of the Planned Parenthood written, stamped, and approved pornographic sex ed in America's public schools as domestic terrorists. Do you, who remembers this? Merrick Garland saying, the Department of Homeland Security, a year and a half ago, two years ago, needs to open up an investigation into domestic terrorist activity for the mama bears and papa bears speaking in school board meetings. It's like, dude, they just burned down the country and you called it mostly peaceful. It was slightly fiery, but mostly peaceful. You call abortion healthcare, what? Do you understand, do you see it, church? If you can redefine everything, it causes chaos because we can't communicate anymore. We can't understand one another. There's a spirit that's been known to cause chaos. There's been a spirit that's been known to break down families and cultures and healthy ideas and mores and standards to reduce people to say, just say yes. Say yes to that urge. Say yes to that desire. Give in to your cravings. Eat the apple. For then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as God. What if Eve was the first woke story? What if wokeism doesn't go back to BLM? What if wokeism doesn't go back to the early socialists and communists in the early 1900s? What if wokeism doesn't go back to Karl Marx and Antonio Gramsci? What if wokeism goes back to the garden? What if the culture war was a proxy war for a deeper spiritual war? All human conflict is ultimately theological. And then Roe v. Wade got overturned on June 24th, 2022. Something, amen, you should clap for that. Something that my generation in particular was told would never happen, right? If you're under 40, you were raised being told this was settled law, a constitutionally decided. Get used to it. Hmm. Of all the victories we could have won in the culture war, 
we overturned the thing that we were told was the least likely. Oh, and by the way, church, by the way, Roe v. Wade only got overturned because of all three Trump-appointed Supreme Court justices to the highest court in the land. So for all of the pious and self-righteous pastors, unlike your leadership here, is that a, Trump is a meanie, twice married, three times married and twice divorced. Uh, he's not very Christ-like, and so I could never vote or mobilize my people for righteousness in that way because he's a mean-tweeting orange man. <laughs> Providentially, God chose to use mean tweets over Russell Moore winsomeness to overturn Roe versus Wade. Because remember, Dobbs versus Jackson lawsuit was 6-3. But then they asked the question, will we go the whole way and fully overturn Roe v. Wade? That vote went 5-4. And who, who was supposed to be appointed to the Supreme Court under Obama before we got Neil Gorsuch? What's his name? Merrick Garland the current Attorney General of the United States of America, who's on his revenge tour against every pro-life conservative that denied him a seat on the Supreme Court because with Merrick Garland, Roe v. Wade doesn't get overturned. Now do you see why they come for anyone who dares be about their father's high kingdom business? June 24th, 2022. The day Roe v. Wade gets overturned is the same day in the church calendar when Christians celebrate the nativity of St. John the Baptist. Good, we got some woke brothers and sisters, some awakened brothers and sisters this morning. It's the day in the church calendar when Christians celebrate Mary going to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who are both pregnant. So you got the prenatal deity God-man taking on fetal flesh, causing the prenatal John the Baptist to do backflips in the uterus because he recognizes the humanity and divinity of his prenatal savior in Mary's womb. But because Jesus is the second member of the Trinity and fully God and fully human, not from the moment of birth, but from the moment of conception, that's God in the womb. And because God is life together in the womb, you've got the prenatal deity, Jesus, knitting the prenatal John the Baptist together in the womb while they're both in the womb of two related women who are celebrating the divinity of God, sending his savior to redeem mankind from their sins. But because God is life together in the womb, Jesus is knitting himself together in the womb while he knits the prenatal John the Baptist together in the womb while he knits himself together in the womb of a woman whose uterus he once knit together when he knit together Mary in the womb of Mary's mother. <laughs> It's called the Incarnation. Uh, have you ever heard of that thing? We, we kind of just celebrated it in December. Uh, that is the gospel. Uh, your savior identifies with you from your most vulnerable stage, the prenatal stage. So is it any surprise, church, that the womb has become the most dangerous place for a human being to find themselves? You are more likely of being murdered in the womb then you are residing or living in any dangerous city or crime-ridden slum. And it was created to be the place that you were protected in and valued. Satan hates babies because 2,000 years ago, it was a baby that came to defeat him. He hates the Imago Dei. Brothers and sisters, the Imago Dei is Satan's trigger 
that makes him go, I need safe spaces, safe spaces. Nothing triggers the enemy of our soul more than the image of God residing in every single one of you because it's a reminder that his day is coming. But in the meantime, he will cause as much chaos as he can. And he will use people to advance his ideology in the meantime. And there was a woman who went to her grave fulfilling that call, whose body count is greater than Mao, Hitler, Mussolini, combined. But you see, we mock those men's names, but this woman's name is praised in the halls of Congress. We name squares in New York City after her. We give Hillary Clinton awards in this woman's name. She is the patron saint of feminism. She is one of the patron saints of humanism. And her name is Margaret Sanger. The founder of the American Birth Control League, later renamed Planned Parenthood. Hosea 4.6 says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We do not understand the ideology of the enemy. For the most part, the American church does not understand <clears throat> how the spirit of the age and his acolytes have been more faithful and dogmatic about their religion and their ideas in the public square than the people of God were to theirs. And unfortunately, the number one response I've gotten from wonderful churches and brothers and sisters like you guys, of faithful churches, not of woke churches, of faithful churches where I would take my family, the number one response I've gotten on this tour is, Seth, I never heard any of that in my life. You cannot defeat an enemy that you do not understand. G.K. Chesterton once said, happy is he who knows not only the hidden causes of things, but who has not lost touch with their beginnings. I know it's always risky quoting Chesterton on a Sunday morning worship service. Usually you need to reread Chesterton pages about four times and then go, and then you go, whoa, he was a son of Issachar, baby. He understood the times and knew how the people of God ought to live in those times and in that space. But what's Chesterton teaching us? Happy is he who knows that ideas have consequences. Happy is he who understands how we got here. Happy is he who understands that things happen gradually, then suddenly. Some of you think, and I'm not like railing on you guys, I love you guys, but I'm just, some of you think that drag queen story hour just suddenly happened. No. The seeds of that conclusion have been being planted and watered in the soil of the American culture war and republic for decades. It's like bankruptcy. Things happen gradually, then suddenly. And then the disaster hits, and you're like, how did this happen? It's like, it happened because you were waiting downstream to pick up human heartache that you helped create. If we're to stand for righteousness and our Father in this moment, as they're coming for pro-lifers, as they're putting the abortion pill 
through the postal service, as they're putting it in Walgreens and CVS as of 14 days ago. As they're destroying marriage with the Respect for Marriage Act so that one day they can arrest Pastor Stephen Jeremy for preaching on what marriage is. We need to return to those things we used to know. We need to go way back if we're to find the way out further up and further in church. Margaret Sanger was radicalized by the communists and socialists of the New York labor movement in the early 1900s in New York City. So pause, you just need to understand the founder of Planned Parenthood wasn't just the birth control gal, she was a humanist. She believed about all of the creeds of progressivism, of humanism. She was a true revolutionary, but she saw what other early revolutionaries did not see. She saw how to use sex and birth control as the key to unlock the revolution. And what do I mean by the revolution? The, the Marxist revolution, the communist revolution, the socialist takeover. These are not conspiracy theorists, theories by tin hat wearing conservatives. People have been trying to do this for millennia in every country. Would be tyrants that saw themselves as gods. It just takes longer in America because of our form of government. Doesn't mean it won't happen. It just means it takes a little longer. So she was committed to that long game to plant the seeds that would yield nasty fruit that she may not actually live to see the results of. You need to understand the secular humanists are far more patient than the Christians. Christians used to build cathedrals. Remember? To raise your eyes to heaven. Beautiful things for the Lord. To remind people why we were here, who we were serving. Christians don't build cathedrals anymore in America. <laughs> Pastor Steve, try selling that building budget fund to your congregation. Hey, will you fund millions to build something that draws people to the Lord? Oh, and by the way, by the time it's done, your kids might be dead, but maybe your grandkids will see it. <laughs> What's my point? The same thing is true politically. The same thing is true culturally. We need to be faithful as stewards to stand in our day to accomplish for righteous resistance what we may not live to see. But we want immediate gratification in America, especially in the age of this, huh? Show me results. But the humanists of the early 1900s were willing to say, I'm okay not seeing the conclusions of the premises that I'm planting, and I'm okay with that. What if we're in this position in the American culture war? Because we've been more like Lot than like Gideon. What does that mean? Well, you know, our forefathers have faced their own culture wars. Have you read this thing? Some gnarly stuff happened in this thing. We can draw lessons from the men and women who came before us, who sometimes faced it way gnarlier culture war issues than we are. So Lot faced his culture war. Lot, who the Bible says is a righteous man. So apparently we're gonna see him in heaven. But when he's at the city gates of San Francisco, Sodom, Sodom, and Gomorrah, <laughs> and the angels come to torch that city, 
he's at the city gates. Lot is the Christian influencer of his day. He's got the Instagram, Instagram verified check mark. He has a position of authority, influence, sway over the political leaders. But when the angels come to torch Sodom, he takes them to his house. And then it says, go read it, Genesis, men from all parts of the city came to Lot's house. Does it feel like every part of culture is descending onto the church? You bigots, you transphobes, you cisgender Christian nationalists who believe that there's two genders and that marriage is a union of one man and one woman. We're going to take your 501c3 statuses. We're going to throw you into gulags. We're going to re-educate you. We're going to make you fund abortion through your health care plans. Make you fund gender mutilation surgery through your health care plans. Oh, and if you uh, share some medical information about a certain jab we don't want you to, we're going to pull you off the digital square. Every part of culture descending onto that righteous man's house. Now listen, Lot was a righteous man. He believed the truth. And he would some, sometimes speak the truth. He would critique the culture of death to a certain extent. He would preach just as much truth as the spirit of the age allowed him to. Because Lot goes onto his front porch. Do you all remember? And he says, hey, brothers and sisters. So he tries to relate to the sexualized mob that wants to sleep with angels. Because what do they say when they went to his house, by the way? Bring those men out that we might have sex with them. It's like, oh, now you understand why God wanted to torch Sodom. Okay. But he tries to relate, I'm a brother and sister like you. And I'm like, Lot, stop trying to get crumbs from the table of secular progressivism. It's 501c3 status. So you can be liked and celebrated by the spirit of the age and his acolytes to make Christianity attractive to the masses. But then he does lob out truth. Good job, Lot. He does critique the men who want to sleep with angels. He says, don't do this wicked thing. <laughs> so here are my daughters. Have sex with them instead. Lot believed the truth and he spoke the truth but he wouldn't lay down his life and die on the mat for the truth. When the time came to stand and protect his, his own daughters, for goodness sakes, he offers them up to remain relevant so he's not reviled to get crumbs from the table of secular liberalism. Lot was saved, but he wasn't salty. So his wife became in death what he should have been in life, a pillar of salt. Brothers and sisters, you can be saved, but not salty. The scriptures say that some people will make it into the kingdom as if through fire. Meaning like, hoo, hoo, hoo. I was getting singed on the way in here, Lord. And then we'll be like, by grace and grace alone. But what's going to be your story at the marriage supper of the lamb? When the Jack Hibbs and the Charlie Kirks and the Rob McCoys 
and the lila roses and the unnamed sidewalk counselors whose gems in their crown will be greater than many of the culture warrior figures whose names you know, who pleaded for the lives of image bearers outside of America's concentration camps. And they'll be saying, throwing those crowns at his feet and saying, look what God did because I stood. We have been like Lot in the American church. 63 million children have been murdered in America since 1973. The sewers of our cities run red with the blood of image bearers. And then we wonder why God doesn't pour out his spirit on America. <laughs> are you kidding me? God, you tell me that if your people who are called by your name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then you will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. But the land is desecrated with blood. Psalm 106, God tells the Israelites, you've sacrificed your sons and daughters to demons and the land is desecrated with blood. And so I give you over to be ruled by those who hate you. Is it beyond the pale to ask this question, church? What if our tolerance and participation in child sacrifice in America has caused God to give us over? To be ruled by those who hate us. Does it feel like we're being ruled by people who hate the church in America? Oh my gosh! And yet we haven't even really experienced true persecution yet. And we can't even stand in this moment. Are you kidding me? Jeremiah 7.30 talks about the valley of slaughter. And God is addressing his people for their tolerance and child sacrifice once again. And he says, for the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Okay, pause. God's omniscient, right? Is he saying, I didn't know you were going to do that? Or is he using language to communicate how horrific his people's actions were? It didn't even enter my mind you would pass them through the fire. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness non-essential. Keep your church shut. The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride for the land shall become a waste. Now, lest you think this doesn't apply to you, Christian, because you say, Seth, we're a pro-life church and I'm a pro-life person. Our church doesn't get abortions. Except 40% of women who obtain abortions report of having attended a church at least on once or twice a month basis. And 40% of them identify as Protestant in some way. 
So women move silently from the pews to the local abortion center and the pulpits are silent. By the way, we fund it with our tax dollars. So every single one of us has participated in the culture of death, whether we like it or not. Which is why in Leviticus 20, God says, if any of you sacrifice your children to Moloch or any of you turn your face from that man when he sacrifices one of his children to Moloch, then I will cut you off from among the people, you and all of you who follow after him in whoring yourselves after Moloch. Oh, but Seth, that's different. Those were infants and those were babies already born. Listen, I'm pro-life and I'm a Christian, but it's not the same. The little baby at seven weeks in the womb is not the same. Really? Well, in Luke 1, when it says that the baby leaped in Elizabeth's womb, the Greek word is berephos. Berephos. Turn to Luke 2. Jesus is now born. And it says Mary laid baby Jesus in the manger. The Greek word referred to used to a baby already born is berephos. Oh, our father uses the same word to refer to a baby in the womb as a baby outside the womb. Oh, for pulpits and pastors who would also see no distinction in value, dignity, worth, and the imago Dei between the child in the womb and the child outside the womb. There's no fetus fairy that sprinkles magical personhood conferring fairy dust on the child as it's born. It was the same human being all along. And our enemy has always known this, which is why abortion is the sacrament of the religion of secular humanism. I know that sounds like weird language. Maybe you're thinking, Pastor Steve, this guy's a weirdo. He's talking about sacraments and a demonic communion. Uh, they're atheists. They don't believe in a God. That's weird. All human conflict is ultimately theological. Peter Kreft, the Catholic philosopher, actually put it better than any Protestant I've ever heard put it when he said abortion is the demonic parody of the Eucharist. That's why it uses the same holy words. This is my body. But with the opposite blasphemous meaning. So our Savior says in that upper room and last supper, this is my body. And I'm going to break it for you now. Take and eat in remembrance of me. It's not a coincidence that the central words behind the entire abortion industrial complex and frankly the religion of humanism is my body. This is my body. My choice. And I'll kill whatever's inside of my body because the serpent told me in Genesis 3, <laughs> I get to be like a god. And a God gets to decide who lives and who dies. Listen, I know if you've had an abortion, man or woman, if you played a role in one whatsoever, I understand that you probably feel horrible right now if you've not been healed and redeemed. So I'm here this morning to remind you that I'm not here to shame or condemn you. I believe that Jesus wants to, that Jesus is just as eager to forgive the sin of abortion as any other sin. We need you healed and redeemed, brother and sister, to be the most powerful voice against the culture of death because you've been there. And if you want evidence of this, by the way, look no further than King David. A man after God's own heart. 
Do you know what his other title was? Peeping Tom. <laughs> and he's in the Hall of Faith. If that's not encouraging to you, I don't know what is. Oh, Bathsheba. Ha, 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 ha. Decides that enjoying her visually is not enough. Sleeps with her, impregnates her, and murders her husband. Ho, ho. How is his heart after God? And then when the prophet Nathan confronts David regarding his sin, he says, my son will not return to me, but I will go to him. Do you know what that means for you, man or woman, if you've obtained, paid for, or stood by and did nothing as your child was killed? It means that if you repent and believe in the gospel, not only will you enter glory with your father one day, but you're gonna see your baby in heaven and he or she is seated on the lap of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords waiting to welcome you into eternal glory. So hear that and receive that. I speak so powerfully on this evil because I'm trying to wake you up and I want you on the front lines to tear down the high places of child sacrifice. Abortion is the demonic parody of the Eucharist. Did you know abortion is the pagan replacement for man's pursuit of eternal life? 1 Corinthians 15, 26. Have no, uh, the last enemy to be defeated is death. Eternity's written on the heart of man. What does that mean? We all want to defeat death. It's an eternal longing written there by Jesus. So rather than accepting the broken body and shed blood of Christ for eternal life, the culture of death demands that we break the bodies and shed the blood of babies for eternal life. Now again, you're probably thinking this guy is a weirdo. Ever heard of embryonic stem cell research? Ever heard of fetal organ harvesting or fetal tissue research? And then two years ago, the humanists that rule over us through scientific, unaccountable, unelected establishments announced that they were experimenting with prenatal gene editing. You tinker around, you poke and you prod, you edit the genes of babies in the womb, actually conceived in petri dishes and labs. They die in the process, but hey, they become an acceptable sacrifice because if we can perfect the prenatal gene editing on the little babies, then when it's safe, because <laughs> we never want to compromise our own rights, when it's safe, we can do prenatal gene editing on adults and edit out of our gene codes certain susceptibilities to diseases and disorders so we can live just a little bit longer. Fetal tissue research, perform experimentation, create humanized mice under funding approved by Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins, the, disgra the disgraced director of the NIH, so that the hair of aborted children grows on the back of lab rodents to perform experiments to find solutions to staph infections. I don't sound so kooky anymore, do I? Abortion is the pagan replacement for man's pursuit of eternal life. And yet all of this began with Margaret Sanger. She got indicted for sending sexually titillating birth control content through the postal service. Rather than getting arrested, <clears throat> she flees to England, ships her kids off to be raised by someone else, and has her socialist friends forge her a passport. What a peach, huh? Does it shock you that the founder of Planned Parenthood wasn't a great mother? I'm sure that's like a man bites dog story. I'm sure you'd never heard that before. She gets radicalized by the Neo-Malthusians in England, which refers to Thomas Malthus, who was the first overpopulation theorist. 
Notice how Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab and uh, Bernie Sanders and frankly the entire Democrat party is obsessed with this idea of too many people on planet Earth. And if we don't curb overpopulation, then the sun god will be really angry and mother Gaia will punish us. And so we gotta kill the babies so that, so that mother Earth will be happy. Because overpopulation is causing climate change which is harming the environment. And so we gotta do something about that. That started in the late 1700s with Thomas Malthus whose disciples are called the Neo-Malthusians that Margaret Sanger meets in her 18-month exile in England to avoid getting arrested by, a, <laughs> by New York City officials. Thomas Malthus said that we had to like build our villages near stagnant pools and cause the poor to be lived in crammed areas and homes to court the return of the plague because they're the really bad, unfit people and we don't want them reproducing. That's what Thomas Malthus said. And then you had Paul Ehrlich, who wrote The Population Bomb. Who remembers that book? The Population Bomb! In 1964, Paul Ehrlich was a board member for Planned Parenthood. Oh, Seth, so you're telling me they were all on the same team? That the overpopulation stuff, and the World Economic Forum, and the Davos, and the Klaus Schwab, and the abortion, and the birth control, and the sex ed in the schools, you're saying that it just, it's all together? That it's all, yep. Just different battlefronts in the same war. Oh, and by the way, they're all communicating. <laughs> no, but Seth, that's a different battlefront. Yeah, well, they all have walkie-talkies. <laughs> they're communicating the whole time on how to upend society. It reminds me of something Abraham Lincoln said. You talk about a son of Issachar. He explained how, how you can recognize that people are working together to accomplish the same goals by the designed product of the conclusion, if that makes sense. This is fascinating. This is what Lincoln said years ago. Um, he said, when we see a lot of framed timbers, different portions of which we know have been gotten out at different times and places and by different workmen, let's call them Stephen, Franklin, Roger, and James. And when we see these timbers joined together and see that they exactly make the frame of a house or a mill, and all the tenons and mortises exactly fitting, and all the lengths and proportions of different places exactly adapted to their respective places, and not a piece too many or too few. In such a case, we find it impossible not to believe that Stephen and Franklin and Roger and James all understood one another from the beginning, and all worked upon a common plan or draft drawn up before the first lick was struck. The same thing is true politically and culturally. These people have been working together on the same team for millennia to cause chaos, to upend society, and recreate man in his own image. And abortion is the linchpin of secular liberalism. It's how the entire project swings. Because if you can get American citizens to be apathetic towards or celebrate the killing of babies in the womb as healthcare, then there's no end to your political project. Sanger understood that as well, which is why she did not begin with abortion. She began with sexual content, sexual chaos, and birth control, specifically on classes of people she didn't want having too many kids. Margaret Sanger focused her birth control project on blacks, Slavs, Italians, Jews, alcoholics, and the criminal class, and those that she thought it would damage society if they were allowed to reproduce. So in England, she meets a man named Havelock Ellis, who was a sexual degenerate. He was the Alfred Kinsey of England. And she begins a raging affair with Havelock Ellis, who would be her single biggest political influence for decades, and they would write letters back and forth to one another for years after she came back to New York. Here's why I'm telling you about Havelock Ellis. 
he had a mentor named Francis Galton who coined the term eugenics. Oh, right, that term eugenics, I've heard that before. It means good in birth, which means some people are bad in birth. <laughs> so they shouldn't be allowed to have kids. Eugenics, yes, the ideology that drove Hitler, Mussolini, Mao, China's one-child policy, abortion, and now euthanasia, or anyone that's defined as unfit to live. Francis Galton is the modern father of the eugenics movement who was the mentor to Havelock Ellis, who was Margaret Sanger's single biggest sexual and political influence. Anyone disturbed yet? These are the high pontiffs, the high priests of the religion of humanism. Francis Galton had a half-cousin, Charles Darwin. Oh, that makes sense, Seth. <laughs> Survival of the fittest, so might makes right. You are no more valuable than a dog, a cat, or a cow. You're just electrified smudge, atoms banging around in the universe, so killing a cow is no different than killing a human. So might makes right. The strong will survive and the weak will die, even if the strong have to kill the weak. Darwinism, hand in hand with humanism, the two most deadly ideologies of the 20th century, more people died because of the religion of humanism in the 20th century alone than in all of human history before that combined. Do you know that? Go fact check me, Pinocchio on that. <laughs> it's a deadly religion. And yet the Democrats are screaming about Christian nationalism. <laughs> why don't you complain about secular humanism, which is why we're here now. Darwin, Francis Galton, Havelock Ellis, Margaret Sanger. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So Sanger comes back to New York and she opens up her illegal birth control clinics. And then the authorities come down and they shut down the clinic because you're not allowed to do that. And so she goes on a journalistic speaking tour around the US and she gets the charges dropped against her from when she fled to England and she founds the American Birth Control League in 1921. Later renamed Planned Parenthood. And she launches the American Birth Control Review because she's got to publish her degenerate demonic ideas. You got to spread the ideas. No social media, so you got to write them down somewhere. So she starts inviting her friends from around the world to write their ideas in her American Birth Control Review. And isn't it fun? They just told us what they wanted to do. They said, thank you. It's through the internet's forever, but so's paper if you can keep it. And we know what they wrote all of her friends, the kind of people she invited to write her ideas in. Here's some of those friends, by the way. Uh, Sanger wrote about how she longed for when the choking human undergrowth of morons and imbeciles would be segregated and sterilized. She said her great aspiration was to, quote, create a race of thoroughbreds by encouraging more children from the fit and less from the unfit. All right, because they get to define who's fit and unfit, right? Schaefer said, Francis, anyone who knows Francis Schaefer is? Said that humanism is the placing of man at the center of all things and making him the measure of all things. C.S. Lewis would explain this further. He would say, for the power of man to make himself what he pleases means, as we have always seen, the power of some men to make other men what they please. All right. 
an alternative creation story. I shall be as gods, and you little peons will know your place. It was a proxy war attack against our Lord and those created in his image. She talked about how the idiots, defective, diseased, and feeble-minded should not be prevented to reproduce. She referred to them as the dullard, the gawk, the numbskull, the simpleton, the weakling, and the scatterbrain. Those are the words of the founder of Planned Parenthood. Isn't that nice? Oh, yeah, she said, she said they're intermarrying. They're breeding. Inordinately prolific, literally threatening to overwhelm the world with their useless and terrifying get. You ever seen those published in the New York Times or the Washington Post? I wonder why. And then she launched her Negro project to propagandize birth control in black enclaves in New York. Why blacks? Well, that was one people group she really just had a thing for. Really didn't want them having too many kids. Planned Parenthood today deflects criticism about their racist eugenicist founding by saying, look, our president, Alexis McGill Johnson, is black. How could you call us racist? You need to understand, the eugenic philosophy of Sanger is not racism in the way we think of racism today. Listen, it's, it's not like purely skin color. She was functioning off of something far more deadly. It's referred to as scientific racism. What does that mean? It's not about color, it's about genes. G-E-N-E-S. There are good genes and bad genes. So those, those, those generations of alcoholics, those generations of criminal classes, those generations of Down syndrome and the mentally defective that keep having kids and creating more people who have Down syndrome, those are bad genes. We need to castrate, tie their tubes, don't let them have kids, and if necessary, court the return of the plague. And some of Margaret Sanger's friends and eugenicists literally floated the idea of putting a fertility control agent in the waters of urban neighborhoods. I'm not joking. This was floated by multiple humanists of the early 19th century. What if we put a fertility control agent in the pipes of the waters that the underclasses drink? Ah! Anyone want to throw up yet? And the Democrat Party is in the same history and lineage of all these ideas today. It's just a different victim class. And they're more cunning with their ideas. So, Sanger says... The gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stocks. Those human weeds, which threaten the blossoming of the finest flowers of American civilization. Wait, 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 wait. Human weeds. She's referring to human beings. She once told ABC News in an interview, well, you'll of course always want to trim your rose bushes analogizing the eugenic experiment of trimming human beings, some of whom should be allowed to reproduce and some of whom shouldn't. Uh, do you understand me now? The culture war was a proxy war for a far more deeper sinister spiritual war. Satan and his demons are in abortion centers. They're in the halls of Congress. And the degree of moral rot in this republic is our responsibility. She spoke at a Ku Klux Klan meeting. This founder of Planned Parenthood. Yeah, the KKK, ever heard of them? Here's how she put it in her journal. We don't have a slide for this. Always to me, any roused group was a good group. Yeah, that's a roused group. 
And so I accepted an invitation to talk to the women's branch of the Ku Klux Klan. A dozen invitations to speak to similar groups were proffered. And then she hired Negro project directors to propagandize birth control. And they wrote down their ideas too. Here's one of them. There is a great danger that we will fail because the Negroes think that this is a plan for their extermination. Hence, let's appear to let the colored run it. What? So you're saying that you know, the blacks know, that you're attempting to exterminate them. So let them run it and be the face of it so they'll think that they're in charge? Which is why Planned Parenthood today has 79% of their surgical abortion facilities within walking distance of majority black neighborhoods and only hires black people at the front desk of those centers so the black babies who dwell in the wombs of their black mothers that they're trying to get a pretty penny to dismember will feel more comfortable because it's being run by someone who looks like them. As it was in 1921, so it is today. Here's another Negro Project director. I wonder if Southern darkies can ever be entrusted with a clinic. Now, who calls black people Southern darkies, by the way? Mm, racist. I wonder if Southern darkies can ever be entrusted with a clinic, because our experience causes us to doubt their ability to work, except under white supervision. We have the document where one of Margaret Sanger's hires, Negro Project directors, wrote that down. The entire operation was a ruse. It was a manipulative attempt to get blacks to cooperate in their own elimination. And sadly, that project was largely successful. Which is why the black population is way, way, way under replacement rate today. And why if something doesn't change in the next three or four decades, you're going to have to go to the Smithsonian to see a black person. Accomplishing Margaret Sanger's vision and goals. And then she had board members and friends. You, what's, what's the saying? You, you know a man by his friends? Proverbs, bad, bad company corrupts good character. So she will be known by her friends. Here's one of them, Lothrop Stoddard, who was a high official of the Massachusetts Ku Klux Klan. Yes, I just told you that the founder of Planned Parenthood had a board member that was a high official of the KKK. Yes, I just said that. And he wrote a book called The Menace of the Underman, Oh, who's the underman? Go Google that after service, by the way. The Menace of the Underman, Lothrop Stoddard. Anyone watch on live stream? You go fact check me on all this. The Nazi party's chief racial theorist, Alfred Rosenberg, yeah, Alfred Rosenberg, appropriated the German term Untermensch from the English word underman, which they got from the book title of Margaret Sanger's board member's book. Untermensch was the title of Heinrich Himmler's famous propaganda book and was also translated as subhuman to refer to the Jews. Guys, the Nazis got the term subhuman from the English version of Margaret Sanger's board member's book. That author, Lothrop Stoddard, met with Adolf Hitler and other high-ranking Nazi officials on his journalistic speaking tour in Nazi Germany in the early 40s. Oh, wow. So when you hear people like Charlie Kirk and Michael Knowles and Tucker Carlson say, hey, the abortion lobby, it's kind of like a Nazi-esque kind of thing. That's not just a Republican talking point. I'm giving you the history behind why people say things like that. Okay. Then there was Leon Whitney, who was the executive secretary of the American Eugenics Society. He didn't sit on her board, but they were allies. And the American Birth Control League, their offices 
was originally housed in the same offices as the American Eugenics Society. Guys, Sanger's heading into work sipping lattes, chatting it up with the founders of the American Eugenics Society. They shared office spaces. And all of the founders, funders, sorry, investors and funders of the American Birth Control League were all part of the eugenics lobby as well. Oh, so they were all on the same team. Mm -hmm. Abortion was just that linchpin of secular liberalism. It was the centerpiece. So Leon Whitney had a boss named Madison Grant. Madison Grant once put a black man in a cage with a monkey at the New York City Bronx Zoo to quote, illustrate evolution. No joke, Madison Grant. His book, by the way, was called The Passing of the Great Race. Here you go, from his 1916 book. You ready for this? Madison Grant. Mistaken regard for what are believed to be divine laws and a sentimental belief in the sanctity of human life tend to prevent both the elimination of defective infants and the sterilization of such adults who are of themselves no value to the community. The laws of nature, yeah, Darwinism, right? Require the obliteration of the unfit. And human life is only valuable when it is of use to the community or race. Okay, so Madison Grant, American Eugenics Society, same office space, Sanger. Leon Whitney, Madison Grant's executive secretary. Everyone following me? Leon Whitney gets a letter in the mail one day, Leon Whitney, who wrote in Sanger's Birth Control Review, founded in 1917. He gets a letter, and it's from a German corporal recently out of prison and rising in the German political scene. And he's thanking Leon Whitney for his writings on eugenics. So Leon Whitney pitter-patters over to the office and says, Madison Grant, the guy who put the black man in the cage with the monkey, our writings are influencing the Germans. Madison Grant smiles and chuckles and he pulls out his own letter he had just received from the same German corporal recently out of prison after his failed coup attempt in Munich, calling Madison Grant's book, The Passing of the Great Race, his Bible. His Bible. The man who wrote those letters was named Adolf Hitler. Yeah, it's a Nazi-esque kind of thing. It was the Jews then defined as unfit and undesirable and unwanted. And then it was the babies. And soon it's anyone who has political and moral views that do not fit into the new distorted order. By the way, that black man that Madison Grant put in a cage with a monkey, his name was Oda Benga, and he took his life 10 years later. Sanger invited Eugene Fisher, Eugene Fisher, to speak at one of her population conferences. Oh, Seth, you tell me that the abortion thing and the population control thing, those were also all part of the same agenda. Eugene Fisher, upon receiving Sanger's invitation to speak at her conference in New York City, had already run a concentration camp in German-controlled Southwest Africa before World War I, where he starved, murdered, and experimented on Native Africans. Eugene Fisher. And then the founder of Planned Parenthood goes, well, you come share your ideas at our conference in New York City. And then, one more, Ernst Rudin. Ernst, E-R-N-S-T, Ernst Rudin. Sanger's Birth Control Review in 1933 published a shocking article entitled, Eugenic Sterilization and Urgent Need. 
It was written by Margaret Sanger's close friend and advisor, Ernst Rudin, who at that moment was none other than Hitler's director of genetic sterilization. Hitler's director of genetic sterilization was a direct mentor and published writer to Margaret Sanger and her birth control review. Which makes sense that Hitler would later go on to thank American eugenicists for the kind of laws that he implemented in the Third Reich. Here is Adolf Hitler. Now that we know the laws of heredity, it is possible to a large extent to prevent unhealthy and severely handicapped people from coming into the world. I have studied with interest the laws of several American states. There you go. Concerning prevention of reproduction by people whose progeny would, in all probability, be of no value or be injurious to the racial stock. A hundred years ago, following the science <laughs> meant being a eugenicist. Did you know this, church? From Harvard to Princeton to Nobel Prize winning authors to the American Museum of Natural History to Supreme Court justices, eugenics was seen as just the inevitable arc of the moral universe bending towards justice. So much so that Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who knows that name? Uh, we got some woke brothers in the church today, sisters. <laughs> Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, a political progressive and eugenics advocate, wrote the 1927 court opinion, Buck versus Bell, an 8-1 decision, 8-1, that upheld Virginia's mandated sterilization law. Because those people were unfit, right? They shouldn't be allowed to have kids. You need to understand this was not just a Germany thing, do you understand? Eugenics was well and alive in American law. He summed up the Supreme Court opinion, Buck versus Bell, saying this, three generations of imbeciles are enough. Oh, so it was alive and well here too. Within 10 years of that decision, you had laws mandating the sterilization of those considered a threat to the gene pool in America. Alcoholics, criminals, immigrants, and African Americans passed in 32 different states. The land of the free and the home of the free. It's estimated that at least 70,000 people were forcibly sterilized from California to New York. Lest you think I'm jesting, Henry Osborne, a paleontologist, so he really loved the dinosaurs, but he hated people, and the co-founder of the American Eugenics Society wrote this. As science has enlightened the government in the prevention and spread of disease, it must also enlighten the government in the prevention and spread of the multiplication of worthless members of society. Co-founder of the American Eugenics Society that had their offices in the same space as the American Birth Control League when Sanger founded it in 1921. The only man to see all of this in the early 1900s and was like Ezekiel blowing the trumpet? Who remembers Ezekiel 36? I think, Pastor Steve? Ezekiel, you're also to be a watchman. And what does he tell Ezekiel? He says, if, if, if the watchman 
sees the sword of the enemy coming and he does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned. And then the sword comes and takes any from among them. They are taken away in their iniquity, but their blood I will require at the watchman's hand. The only man credited today as blowing that trumpet as loud as possible at the same time that Sanger is rising is G.E.K. Chesterton. I call him the first lib-triggering troll. Oh, he was good at taking ideas and inverting them and making them a public spectacle to be laughed and mocked at like Elijah with the prophets of Baal. Remember? Hey, you build your altar, I'll build my altar. Hey, God, show him what's up. <laughs> and then Elijah goes to the prophets of Baal and he goes like, so what's going on? And then he literally says, where is your God? Is he pooping? <laughs> hey, hey, it's in here, man. Don't go yelling at Pastor Steve after. He says, is he relieving himself? Like, is he constipated? Like, <laughs> Chesterton was like that with ideas. Chesterton said, if Darwinism was the doctrine of the survival of the fittest, then eugenics was the doctrine of the survival of the nastiest. Because who's alive behind the aims of eugenics? Some of the nastiest human beings you could imagine. And did I just give you a primer on some of them? He described the eugenicists of his day, Lothrop Stoddard, Madison Grant, Ernst Rudin, Margaret Sanger, the way we should describe the eugenicists of our day, Klaus Schwab, Bill Gates, Bernie Sanders, AOC, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, Alexis McGill Johnson. They combine a hardening of the heart with a sympathetic softening of the head. In other words, they're stupid. But church, don't conflate stupidity for lack of zeal. They will go to their graves contending for, fighting for, and defending their very stupid ideas because it allows them to fulfill the serpent's promise in Genesis 3. Maybe I could still be like a god. And so in 1920, in an English newspaper, one year before Sanger founds the American Birth Control League, so what I'm telling you is a year before the organization that would be named Planned Parenthood was founded, Chesterton writes in an English newspaper where this will all go. We are not so very far off from even the sacrifice of babies. If not to a crocodile, at least to a creed. The creed of eugenics the creed of Neo-Malthusianism, the creed of humanism, the creed of overpopulationism. And he saw it one year before she opens the organization. Who would not go on to perform abortions until the late 60s? Did you know that? Yeah, Planned Parenthood wasn't performing abortions until the late 60s, but it was founded in 1921. And before Sanger planned on performing abortions, Chesterton was saying, this is gonna end in child sacrifice. Because if you detach the human being and the image bearer and you detach dignity and human rights from the fact that we're simply human, 
then there's no limiting principle to that ideology. It opens up the door to redefine anyone as unfit, undesirable, or to quote the Nazis, Lebens unvertensleben, life unworthy of life. What if the church had heeded the warnings of G.K. Chesterton in 1920? What if the church would care more about righteousness and the plight of their neighbors than their own reputation? What if the church had awakened and realized that the culture war, it was a proxy war for the deeper spiritual war and you were refusing to preach against false religion by refusing to contend in the culture wars. But we buried that evil, didn't we? For decades in the American church, we convinced ourselves that Christianity has nothing to do with politics. Johnson Amendment, I'm just gonna preach the life, death and resurrection of Jesus and not how that applies to every facet of life. But in burying the evil that we saw, we implanted it. Which is why Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who knows that name? The survivor of the Russian gulags and one of the most prophetic voices of the 20th century. Go read the Gulag Archipelago. Famously said, you ready? In keeping silent about evil, and burying it so deep within us that no sign of it appeared on the surface, we were actually implanting it. So it would rise up a thousandfold in the future. Boy, did the ideology of eugenics rise up a thousandfold in the future, huh? Thanks to the silence of Christians and the commitment to follow the science revolutionaries, tens of millions of people were murdered and forcibly sterilized in the 20th century alone because of the ideology of eugenics. And 65 million babies since 1973, their blood cries out from the ground. And we wonder why we don't have revival. We need to give God a reason to show this country mercy. Which is why I'm so glad to be here in California, the abortion capital of America, with one of the most demonically inspired governors in all of these 50 states. Because if we can start sending good news out of California, then maybe it's not too late to turn this American experiment around and fulfill that prayer. If my people who are called by my names will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear and I will hear. A young woman in 1942, Nazi Germany, was like a Jonathan, a David, and a Gideon, and was contending against the same evil we are now. It was the Jews then, it's the babies now. And now you're what, what is it, ultra-MAGA Republicans or domestic terrorists or something like this? And she's walking the sidewalks in Munich, Germany, and she comes across a paper called Leaflets of the White Rose. This 21-year-old was named Sophie Scholl, whose father had spent some time in prison for publicly criticizing Hitler. So she came from good stock. She was sassy since conception too, I guess. And she's reading this and it says, if you know, why do you not act? It says, we are the White Rose Resistance. We are your bad conscience. And we will not leave you alone. 
And so her heart is stirred to action. We know that she had a deep and abiding love for Jesus from the letters we have to this day that she was writing to a boyfriend and her brother and family. So she joins the White Rose Resistance. Come to find out. (laughs) Not only was it launched, but it was being run by none other than her older brother, Hans. She's thinking, bro, you've been holding out on me. But 24-year-old Hans was just trying to protect his little sister. Guys, it's, it's 1942. The Jews have been being burned for three years. They've been wearing the yellow star for three and a half years. Hans knew how dangerous his political resistance was. You see, they would stay up all night writing and printing and taking trains around Germany to major cities and dropping off piles of these leaflets. It was a social media campaign pre-digital age. Ephesians 5.11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, prick the conscience of the culture. Do you see what's happening? Wake up, it's not too late, let's go. And then in 1943, 80 years ago in two weeks, on February 18th, Hans and Sophie took things to the next level. And they walked onto the campus at the University of Munich. Now, do you know that the academy, like the clergy, had largely been co-opted into silence and obedience by the Third Reich? This was dangerous. They walked the hallways, dropping off piles of their illegal leaflets, just as brother and sister. And then Sophie, in this iconic act, contending with the same ideas and ideology we are now, walks to the third floor balcony of the University of Munich, which you can visit today, and she throws an entire stack of leaflets down to the atrium below. What happens when you throw paper? It goes everywhere. The janitor, a committed Nazi, catches Sophie in the act, calls the Gestapo, and has Hans and Sophie arrested on February 18th, 1943. Because they were arrested that day, they missed a meeting they had scheduled on the books in Munich that afternoon with a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the founder of the Confessing Church, murdered at Flossenburg Prison, hung naked on April 9th, 1945, whose final words were, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. Who had been so inspired by these 20-somethings bravery, he had come to meet with them and connect with other Christian resistance chapters in Germany. They never made that meeting. They spend the next four days in prison, being brutally abused, interrogated, and they refuse to implicate any of their other friends or members of the White Rose Resistance. The prison guards were so disturbed and confused by their bravery and calm in the face of death that minutes before they were escorted to the guillotine, they relaxed the rules and let Hans and Sophie's parents meet with them and say goodbye in a side room. And Sophie's mother looked her doomed daughter in the eyes and said, remember Jesus, Sophie. And Sophie replied, yeah, but you too, mama. We know because of Sophie's cellmate, Elsie Gebel, who later wrote letters to Sophie's parents explaining every hour of their daughter's life, that Sophie was at peace. She was not so disturbed by her impending death. She was disturbed in soul as how you, her parents, could handle losing two children on the same day. 
And during their court proceedings in that kangaroo court being run by Nazis, Sophie's father rushed into the courtroom. And as he was escorted out, he looked at the jury and judges and he said, you will one day stand where they sit now. Christian nationalist, right? That's too political. Sophie is speaking prophetically to you today, church, to wake up and understand that evil is powerless only when the good are unafraid. Only then. Stop blaming the doers of evil. Stop whining about it. Stop yelling at Tucker Carlson on Fox News and saying, how are they getting away with this? That's the story of human history. So shortly before her death, Sophie, a 21-year-old, and the namesake of my third daughter, third child born two months ago, spoke more prophetically and with more moral and spiritual clarity than most of the pulpits in Germany. And 80 years later, it's what we need to hear to understand how we got here and to get out of this mess. It's not about us. We're not like, oh, I just want my rights to worship. No, we're exercising our responsibility as stewards of the king. To whom much is given, much is required. Spider-Man's uncle. <laughs> With great power comes great responsibility. So here's a 21-year-old. The real damage is caused by all of those millions out there who just want to survive. The honest men and women, like Lot, who just want to be left in peace. Those who don't want their little lives disturbed <laughs> by anything bigger than themselves. Those with no sides and no causes. Those who won't take measure of their own strength for fear of antagonizing their own weaknesses. Those who don't like to make waves or enemies. Those for whom freedom, honor, truth, and principle, it's just literature. Those who live small, die small. It's the reductionistic approach to life, church. Because if you keep it small, you'll keep it under control. If you don't make any noise, the boogeyman won't find you, Department of Homeland Security, FBI. But it's all an illusion. Because they die too. Those people who roll up their spirits into tiny little balls so as to be safe. Safe. From what? Life is always on the edge of death. Narrow streets, they lead to the same place as wide avenues. And a little candle burns itself out, just like the flaming torch does. So I choose my own way to burn. Okay. Who talks like that at 21? <laughs> Sounds like Chesterton, huh? Sounds like Tolkien? Sounds like C.S. Lewis? Sounds like Winston Churchill? A young woman with the lion of the tribe of Judah roaring inside of her to say, get onto the battlefield. If you know, why do you not act? Proverbs 24, 11 and 12. Hold back those staggering toward the slaughter. And if you say, Lord, we did not know about this. Does not he who made your life know it? 
Does not he who formed your heart see it? And will he not judge man according to what he has done? In other words, I knew that you knew. William Wilberforce, you may choose to look the other way, but you can no longer say you did not know. We have been like the Levite and the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan, walking by and driving by on the other side of the road where we know innocent human beings are scheduled to die. But we were too spiritual. We just preached the gospel. So we ignored the weightier issues of the law, justice, mercy. Right before escorted to the guillotine, her cellmate said that Sophie looked out her window and said, how can we expect righteousness to prevail when there's hardly anyone willing to give themselves up individually to a righteous cause? Such a fine sunny day it is and I have to go now. But what does my death matter if through us thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action? Brothers and sisters, they never saw thousands awakened and stirred to action. The church remained asleep and the Jews were slaughtered. But while rose blossoms may perish in the fall, they reappear in the spring, don't they? While all of the members of the White Rose Resistance, except one, were found and executed, their sacrifice has planted the anti-Sanger, anti-Hitler, anti-Leon Whitney, anti-Madison Grant, righteous seeds into the soil of the republic. And your sacrifice will water those seeds of resistance. So one day, thousands will be awakened and stirred to action. The white rose will blossom again. And we can say as the blood-bought bride of Christ, the sun still shines, spelled with an O. So brothers and sisters, I am rebuilding the white rose resistance for this generation against our silent but far more deadly holocaust of abortion to build the army of godly Christian resistance that Hans and Sophie dreamed of but never saw realized to end our holocaust of abortion today. The hour could not be later. We're exercising our responsibility my pastor, Rob McCoy, calls me the Charlie Kirk of the pro-life movement. I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you, I've been raised up, conceived, and birthed to be a pain in the rear, a stick in the eye, and a fly in the ointment to the prophets of Baal, to be like Gideon and walk out of the cave we've been hiding in as the buyer of Christ, to be about our father's high kingdom business, to give him a reason to show this country mercy. So when we look him in the eye one day, whether we came in by the singeing of our rear or welcomed into the gates of glory, and we hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant, we can respond, I did everything I could to save your children and image bearers from a holocaust that sought to wipe them out. As William Wilberforce said, a private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. Pure and undefiled religion is this. Care for orphans and widows in their distress. Let's end with this. Do you know why the orphan is so close to the heart of our father? Because their life is endangered because their parents are dead. How much more does our father care about the orphan in the womb whose life is endangered not because their parents are dead, but because their parents want them dead?
we are rebuilding godly resistance before it's too late. So your grandchildren are not raised in gulags, and they can demand the welfare of the city to build godly families, legacies, and heritages that we can one day throw down as crowns before the feet of our king. I'm inviting you to help me rebuild the White Rose Resistance. You can scan the QR code. You can scan the code on your little uh, thingy we gave you, or you can tear it off and fill it out. Uh, my, Charlie, my friend Charlie Kirk says, there are fighters and there are people who help the fighters, and without the people who help the fighters, there are no fighters. Listen, you may not be called to the front lines at UC Berkeley and Cal Poly Slow and abortion centers in Washington, D.C. to mock the spirit of Baal and the worshipers of Baal. I am. Help me be that spear into the heart of the abortion industry by building a team, the likes and righteous of which you've never seen in the pro-life movement before to end this Holocaust while we're still alive before it's too late so we don't punt the can down the road once again for the next generation. Brothers and sisters, I'll see you on the battlefield. Now go out there and give them heaven, will you? Hey, kids. Let's have the elders come up. Pastors, we're going to pray over Seth just so we we'll partner with you. We believe in the ministry that God has given you and he's the, the spirit that he's empowered you to do this. You are a powerful voice. You've given us a huge truth bomb today and we're th so grateful for that. So let's pray over you right now. Jesus, thank you for Seth, Lord. Thank you for the, the words, the wisdom, uh, your spirit residing in him, Lord. The lion of the tribe of Judah inside of him, Lord, that allows him to have this voice against all the evils that is going on right now, Lord Jesus. Empower him by your spirit, Lord. Thank you that we get to partner with him. Thank you for the, the truth that he spoke today, Lord God. May it, it change our lives forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Amen. God bless you. So... Thank you, church. Um, powerful truth bomb today. Uh, you don't have to sit down. You can stand up. I'm, I'm, I'm making you sit down again. But uh, hey, we, we know just the, the devastations that the abortion has had, the statistics that Seth shared. So we just want, want you to know that the lifeline is in the back. They're, they're, they're there to pray for you. If you know someone or have gone through an abortion, they, they want to pray for you. There is redemption found in Jesus Christ. But God bless you guys. Thank you for joining us. Bathrooms are that way if you're joining us for the first time. There's some merchandise. Uh, but God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Your